Stew here. I'm very proud to announce that Spoilers, my award-winning climate change comedy show, is returning to the Edinburgh Festival on the 12th, 13th and 14th of August. You can get your tickets at stuartgoldsmith.com on the little orange banner, or you can just go to edfringe.com and search my name. I mean, that's what I'd do. Whether you're a die-hard, north-face-wearing climate dude, or whether you are just a regular person who's a little bit nervous about all the news you're seeing and doesn't really know what to think, there's something there for you. It's really fun and funny, and I think you're going to love it. See you there. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF Podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. This is a podcast from ComediansComedian.com. This is the Comedians Comedian Podcast. Hello there, I'm Stuart Goldsmith and this is one of my favourite interviews conducted in New Zealand at the International Comedy Festival there last month. Uh, Michelle Acourt is a provocative, challenging, very astute and most importantly very funny comedian who I met at World Buskers in Christchurch earlier this year uh, and got to talk to in Auckland a few weeks ago. So with no further ado, here she is, Michelle Acourt. Thank you, Michelle Acourt, for uh, coming and appearing on the show. And I, I was thinking, what was the first thing I wanted to ask you? And in all honesty, I wanted to go, so, are women funny? <laughs> Simply because you wrote the you wrote the best kind of riposte, the best comprehensive answer to that question. And I hope you don't, we can talk about it, at, you know, at, at some point or not. But obviously the point of what you wrote is, never ask me this question again. Here's everything you could possibly know. I quite like to, in um, mainstream media, say if you, if you ask me any of those questions, there are two possible things that will happen. The first is I will pull out my copy of what I wrote and hand it to you, <laughs> and you can read the answers yourself. Or that the only alternative answer I will give is to say cunt flats. <laughs> and if they know that going in, and I end up saying that on television or on national radio or commercial radio or something, well, Terrific. it's their fault. So you, just for people who haven't read the thing, I won't try and praise you the whole thing. We can direct them. It's on your blog, the address yeah. of which is... MichelleAcourt.com. Okay. With no punctuation in it. Sure. And the, the answer was, you've, you've been a comedian for how long? 21 years now. 21 years. Yeah. And in that time, you must have fielded the Are Women Funny debate, left, right, centre. And over and over again. I mean, I wrote that piece because I had just been interviewed the day before <clears throat> about it. And, um, you know, by a perfectly lovely person. It's not like anybody's being an asshole. But So I'd done that interview and I felt myself giving the same answers again. And I'd been asked to do it... <clears throat> excuse me, a month before as well. And, you know, so this was March, <coughs> excuse me, and March. And I, so I had answered it. I think I had done three interviews by then. And it's it happens six times a year. And you multiply that by 21, and I'm just over it. Mm-hmm. And I also bore the shit out of myself with those answers too because I've heard them. And so I, I was going to stay at home and watch um, a whole lot of, you know, crap programs on my sky one night. And I thought, no, I'm so angry. So I opened a bottle of wine and wrote that. <laughs> That's an amazing intro. I opened a bottle of wine and got stuck in. Yeah. And I mean, the reason I feel like I should bring it up even, and obviously I'm not going to sit here and ask you whether you think women are funny, but your your show that I saw, we met in I'm Christchurch. <laughs> we met, no, I didn't. I didn't know. <laughs> uh, we met in Christchurch earlier this year yeah. at the World Buskers Festival, and you did a show there called Things I Forgot to Tell My Daughter. Yeah. And a, a big par- portion of that show was personal stuff about your child or now grown-up child Um, and a lot of it was observational comedy about motherhood and childhood and and parenthood Um, and also at the end there was a substantial section about feminism which I thought was brilliant because it took the it took the stance of being an actual you weren't afraid to kind of I don't want to say lecture but you were educating you weren't afraid to educate yeah yeah there was a conscious thing that I thought about doing because I um 
I, you, you kind of, I'm in my 50s now, and you get to a point where you, um, Lena Khan says, I will finish one of these sentences. <laughs> no problem. But Lena Khan says the gorgeous thing in his biography, the Sylvia Simmons one, that the world conspires to silence you. So by the time you turn 50, you are either, you've either stopped talking or started shouting. And I've decided to start shouting, and I'm not going to not say the things that I really care about anymore. And one of the things that I keep being hit in the face with is that we don't talk about feminism. Women my age don't talk about it to their daughters, and and we haven't. We've ju- I think we're in a new wave now, and I think we've all started talking about it again. But feminism was a word that nobody talked about for. 15 or 20 years and you know I kind of it was like trying to um, live a double life because I wanted to respond in some ways to things that happened but I didn't want to come across as a um, snarky old bitchy feminist and now I think I come across as a snarky old bitchy feminist do it yeah right is that that must be it's interesting in the way that comedians work and the things we want to talk about on stage are you always someone you strike me as someone from what I know of your work and your blogs that you you absolutely talk about what you want to. Have you always been that as a comedian? Do you ever feel that you, I mean, when you started out, were you trying to please an audience or did you start from the point of view of, here's what I want to say? I think I have some weird idea that people care, would care for a moment about what I think. So that's okay. So, so I have um, tried to create um, a turn comedy into a job that paid the mortgage. So to some extent, I've done corporate work from right from the beginning, which is a crazy thing to do, really. And so it had to be um, kind of a bit nice and pretty and, and well-behaved and don't say fuck too much. <laughs> but, Not too much. Because I, I didn't want to go and get another job. I wanted to turn this into a job that made money. So, so I might have done clean, tidy, um, socially acceptable comedy in corporate environments, but then I get to a club and I just want to say what I want to say. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, does that answer? Yeah. So, yeah. well, let's just go back to the beginning then. You were a TV presenter. Yeah. So, I you were a kids' TV presenter. Yeah. I, I'm yeah. not, the show is what now, but I don't, yeah. I don't know. Okay. Yeah. Yeah, and I came from a theatrical... My mother was an actor when nobody else was, and, and so so being a performer uh, has always been like a perfectly normal job to me. Sure. That's what you do. And, um, yeah, so I, got a, I was a children's TV presenter. And then I was living in Queenstown after that, between marriages... <laughs> so many and um, everybody else was a singer or musician and I wanted to be on stage doing stuff too so I started trying stand up okay yeah and what was the what was the first set you ever you ever wrote were you a, did you write a load of jokes what yeah. were the circumstances of the, of the kid that you did? Um, I wrote a character piece um, uh, about a bridesmaid at a wedding so yeah I started like a lot of women do with a character piece so okay. that sort of bridge between um, theatre and stand up and then the, and then I moved to Auckland and the very first piece of stand up I wrote was for a television gig that night and I wrote it I just I think I had a six month old baby at that point and I wrote a piece about how I'd read in the newspaper the day before that uh, the average woman's nipple has 5,472 I'm exaggerating because I can't remember um, ducks that release um, breast milk and that I wanted to know um, who had that job that was a really interesting job to have to count nipple <laughs> ducks okay. so yeah so I did, uh, that, that was, that's not all of it but that was the, that was a sort of five minute set that I wrote for okay me. and where, where did that come from did that come from a you say who had that job was that just kind of this is a weird thing sort of observational comedy well no it genuinely seriously occurred to me because I'm not looking for gags but my mind just says well fuck how do they know that who, okay. whose job is it to do that so I'm not necessarily looking for the gag it's just that's that's where my mind immediately goes when I read something like that sure but you so you starting out aged uh, what, what was that what was that face what did that oh say? just how mental I am <laughs> <laughs> so with you with you starting out did you have a did you have a kind of an, an argumentative attack as a as a comedian did you do you, do you see what I mean? Like, like yeah. having, having seen, having seen. I mean, my my experience of your comedy is that hour that I saw. Yeah, yeah. And is is that radically different from the stuff that you were doing then? Did you have an urge to to get involved? 
Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I think it's always what I think comedy is about. And I was thirty-two when I started doing stand-up, so quite grown up, really, quite old, done other things. But, um, but I think comedy for me is all about letting people know that they're not the only one who thinks what you think. Mm-hmm. For me, it's the... I'm going to get really winky. Mm, no, great, great. Can you handle that? Um, is, it's that shared human consciousness. So it's those moments where where I'm hoping that that weird reaction I had to nipple ducts is something that has occurred to somebody else. Or that at the very least, if it hasn't occurred to them, that when they realise that occurred to me, they don't think I'm mental. Okay. I reckon that we all know that there's something wrong with us. We're not quite sure what it is. And so we quite like to get inside somebody else's mind and be reassured that we're no more mental than anybody else. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I, I, I'm going to release all of these episodes. I'm recording a bunch here. And um, obviously at the moment I'm preoccupied with my show. Just for the sake of my listenership, I don't want to bang on about the things I was speaking to Jerry Christmas about earlier this week. But um, I'm absolutely grappling with that at the moment of how do you... It's a risk, isn't it? Yeah. It's a risk to expose yourself to say, hey, you know when you... Yeah. Or even, does anyone else? Yeah. Dot, dot, dot. Yeah. And I find that really challenging to ex- to expose myself yeah. in that kind of way. Do you find it hard or are you happy wearing your heart on your no, sleeve? No, I'm happy wearing my heart on my sleeve. And I think that I don't ever couch it in terms of, um, hey, have you ever noticed or do you think? I just go, this is what goes on in my head. And if they laugh, it means it goes on in their head or that they find it endearing. And either of those two things is okay because it means I'm not alone. I really do think that the comedy is all, all about we're not alone. Is that clapping? <laughs> I think of clapping as um, people metaphorically holding hands. Oh, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> let, let, let the record state that uh, Michelle did a face as she explained that as well, as if to say, God, what am I saying? I know, I'm being quite honest. That's good, though. Yeah, so no, it's, it is, because when I go and see a comedy show, it's those gasps of recognition where you go, oh, it's not just me who's th- who thinks that, or oh, that's an amazing way to look at the world. And have you had experiences where you've either either starting out or more recently in your career, have you had experiences when you've gone on, tried new material? and gone hey I do this thing and you've just been met with incomprehension or is it always have you got a good nose for kind of going okay that stuff they'll relate to that stuff maybe that is private is there there a scale or is everything everything's out there Uh, probably that's three questions at once yeah (laughs) I'm sure I won't tell them everything and I can't think of any moments where anybody's gone you're just mental there's usually someone who um, who feels the same way about stuff I can't think of any times where it's had a complete brick wall. I mean, I do. I chuck stuff out there all the time because I check. I also write a weekly column for a newspaper, and and that's just. I used to be really frightened of that, and now it's just. I just throw it out there, and it's like you know, checking to see if pasta's cooked. You just see what sticks to the wall, okay. and um, and and I'm gratified that mostly, at least one other crazy person will go. Yeah, me too. I'm working on a bit at the moment that for a, that's going to turn up in a column that I'm going to write on Monday, that I want to be a lapsed woman. You know the way you can be a lapsed Catholic? It's like you can't ever really leave the Catholic Church, but you don't have to go to services anymore. Or to oh, it's okay. I'd like to be a lapsed woman because I'm just sick of it. <laughs> I'm sick of, um, of, of having to... Um, um, the, the getting dressed and the putting the makeup on and the believing the bullshit in the magazines and... And being I being defined by my gender, like you know, like people are defined by being Catholic. So I just I'd like to be a lapsed woman and not tick any box on the gender thing. So I'm sure there's some jokes in there eventually. But I I I they're not there yet clearly. But I said to a girlfriend last night, I'm writing a piece. I'm working on a piece for my column about being a lapsed woman, and she immediately her eyes lit up and she went. <gasps> That's a great idea. You yeah. mean like Catholics, so you just don't have to do the ritual. Yeah, anymore. right. Yeah, so there's something there, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I'm sorry. I'm in ideas mode, not audience mode. So yeah, don't yeah, take me not laughing. Is it problematic? No, no, no. I think it's great. Of course, that works as a, as yeah. a premise. Brilliant. Yeah, so, and so already I'm okay with that because I've met one 
woman who understands what I'm talking you. about. Yes. That'll do. You know, that's good. Yes. So Ruth says that that makes sense to her. So if the rest of the world go, <laughs> it doesn't matter. Okay. Um, do you do you have, I was coming back to something we briefly mentioned earlier, do you have stuff that isn't available to an audience? Are there things you think that you don't say? Yeah. Yeah, but that might change. I mean, I think I've probably tucked some some ways that I think and the ways I view the world away. There are certainly bits of my life that I will never talk about. Um, um, I always, for a period of time after my second divorce, I um, did a, a lot of jokes and became quite well known for doing a lot of jokes about the ex-husband. And um, people would criticise me for... When I say people, I mean men, would criticise me for um, having a crack at him because he's not there, right? So that's like a powerful position to talk about somebody who's not in the room. And and people would criticise it, and again, I mean men, for being too personal. And it kind of amused me because um, I have never talked about the specifics of why that marriage ended because they're... Sure. You know, it was sort of <laughs> horrific. I like the way I put sort of into the Sort of horrific, sort yeah, of horrific, okay. Yeah. Okay. And so and, and none of the stuff that I talked about was specific or particular to my experience. I picked the stuff that I thought would be universal enough for other people in the room who have been through a breakup to understand. So that kind of answers your question about whether there are some things that I don't sure and, and do you think that response from critics by which I mean men yeah. do, do, do you think that response was because even though the stuff wasn't specific it was relatable enough that they felt personally aggrieved yeah. they yeah, felt yeah. like you were having to go at yeah. either men yeah. or them specifically yeah 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 and how does that make you feel to think that you're... I mean, presumably that's a, that's a sign of success as a as a comic, that you're going, yep, bang, got it, nailed it, if people are reacting Yeah, I guess so. I guess so. And then, I, you know, there's a little tiny piece of me that feels a bit smug that I managed to uh, get away with it. Oh, does that make sense? That I uh, managed to talk, exorcise the pain of that situation through comedy without... Um, uh, really revealing too much. Okay. Because I think if you go through major life, life events, like, you know, marriage, divorce, falling in love, falling out of love, birth, um, death, you have to talk about them as a comedian or, you you know, you're not authentic. You can't... You have to talk about the, the thing that's making the noise in the head. Um, so I had to talk about that stuff, but I didn't tell anybody else's story you know, I didn't. I didn't tell any of my daughter's story in a real way, and I didn't tell his story in a real way, and I didn't. Um, re- I didn't reveal too much of my real stuff. Mm, yeah. And when you talk about the noise in the head, that's a. That's a. I've not heard anyone use that expression before. I yeah. really like that. I can't do anything but yeah. talk yeah. about the stuff I end up talking about. The last three shows I've made have all been about various deficiencies in my life that I've ended up somehow you know either engaging with because of the the comedy process or or what have you and for this one the fourth show I thought right it's just jokes just gonna do jokes a couple of months into it it's not just jokes it's absolutely it's I can't help but talk about the stuff yeah 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 it will make you and you know it's like trying to um have a quiet evening with a small child in the corner shouting (laughs) not me me talk about me yeah, you just you you have to deal with it. Or and also, I always think if you if you um, if you don't talk about the, the the thing that's making the noise in your head, then everything else will stop making a noise, and you won't have any ideas. I'm sure that's where writer's block comes from. That's interesting blocks. because you're actually avoiding the thing that needs. Yeah. Okay. So all the other ideas, the smaller, quieter ideas, are going to sit there with your arms folded, going, "No, nah, not coming. You deal with that, and then we'll come." Yeah. 
Yeah. Oh, that would be lovely. Would be, it would be lovely to think that a writer's block was a, a real thing that which I'm sure it is, but it, it's real and it has a real cause, and that might be a solution. That's yeah. actually fascinating. Yeah. I remember reading a blog I don't know a couple of years ago about someone who said that I found the cure for writer's block. So I looked at it. They said what you need to do is find. I think the example they had was a, a car engine that they had taken apart and needed to put back together. Didn't know what the hell they were doing. So as soon as you've got something you want to do even less than writing <laughs> suddenly you can use the writing itself as a as a displacement activity yeah yeah okay that would work do you do you find it difficult to write you it seems from the volume of, of your output that you chuck stuff out it's there do you ever favorite thing okay it's, oh, i love it I love more it. so than the more so than the performing which side if you could only do one mm. if i could only do one i think i'd just write but um but but I love the performing thing. Sure, that's okay. like that's like. Um, um, Which of your children would you say? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And often I think of writing as the that's the practical hard part. I mean, it's like getting ready for a party and then getting on stage is throwing the party. So there's no point in getting ready for a party all the time if you don't get to throw the party. Sure. Yeah. Okay. And do you ever do you have talk about the writing when you let's look at the specifically the writing of stand up rather than the blog for now. Yeah. Um, do you have a, a structure? Do you have a kind of a plan to what you do in the week? Is it just when it grabs you or when you grab it? Yeah, it's when it grabs me, and I'm just I'm always a little bit disappointed in myself that I don't have a plan and a structure. I think maybe I would produce more new material that way but I like to wait for it to just land in my head from the gods I like it to just drop in and you know even if it's that's only a bit of it and then you and then you build around it but I do kind of wait for it to arrive arrive like a gift and what what's what's the what's your kind of regular output are you writing a new show a year every two or three years no, or what what's your the one that I did last year the stuff I forgot to tell my daughter show was my first solo show in seven years gotcha yeah because okay. I'd been busy with um you know raising the kid and and earning the living and and I also I really think festival shows should be um the thing that you do because you can't bear not to do them and I hadn't got to that point for seven years mm. I did prior to that I was doing one every year and then I just went why I, I, I'm doing this because I feel like I need to write a festival show why don't I wait until I have a show I can't bear not to do yeah. And so that's what I did with that one. Michelle's great. I'm sure you're enjoying this as much as I am. Uh, we're about to get stuck into some properly deep, fascinating territory. That's all coming right up. Uh, and well done for listening to this one as well. If you're not familiar with Michelle's work, she's a big noise in New Zealand, doesn't have too big a profile in the UK. Uh, and I know some of you, I'm talking to the UK listeners now, some of you only download the apps with people that you've already heard of. I hope you trust me enough by now that you know I only have people on the show if I think they're superb and if I'm convinced that you'll agree. So I'm not going to say any more about that just now. In the second half of this interview, we do get stuck into some fairly weighty topics. So if you're listening in the UK, think of this as a little reward for taking a chance on someone you might not be so familiar with. A uh, couple of little adverts again. Uh, again, sorry, global listeners. These uh, I, I can only advertise stuff I'm doing, and most of my work at the moment is in the UK. A couple of previews coming up. Uh, the 8th of June, I'm in Southend uh, with James Acaster doing a doubleheader preview at the Joker Comedy Club. You can Google up some information on that, the Joker in Southend. That's the 8th of June. On the 10th of June, a preview with John Hastings at the Harrison in Euston. Uh, the 18th of June, I'm doing a Pleasance in... I'm doing a Pleasance. I'm doing a preview at the Pleasance in London on my own. It'd be great to see you there. Uh, and the 6th of July, the brilliant ARG Festival. Do look online at argcomfest.com. So argcomfest.com. That's at the Garage in Highbury, also in London. Um, thank you once again for all of your donations. Just hit the PayPal button at comedianscomedian.com if you'd like to join your fellow frog killers in supporting this show with whatever size donation you deem appropriate. A pounder show makes you a better comedian. That's official, uh, and we're going to get that peer-reviewed just as soon as we get around to it. That's all for now. Uh, I'm going to get stuck straight back into this one because I, I think we've got a lot more to say. Let's get back to Michelle Acorn. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. 
PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. You mentioned earlier on uh, the idea of authenticity. And that's clearly important to you. You know, yeah. you're, you're a person that speaks your mind and wants to in, engage. You know, it's not just kind of, you know, whimsical stuff. Yeah. Um, when you see other comics who are on that track of banging out a show every year, what, what's your opinion of that? Do you think that they're dredging everything up and saying stuff they don't need to say? Or is it just that they're going through so much shit they have to say a new thing? Yeah, a little bit of both. I tend not to go to see somebody's show unless I think that they really, really cared about it. Um, um, uh, yeah, and you know, you kind of know who the people are who have, even if there's just some kind of thematic device that holds it together. That narrative's really important to me. I like, I like the stories that take me places and and end up somewhere. So if I think it's just going to be chunks of bits of. TV-friendly, 10-minute slots. Yeah, yeah, I don't go. But if it's somebody's got a concept that makes me go, wow, that, I want to know what that's like, then I'll go to it. So, And I do sometimes sit... Oh, yeah. I do, oh, go on. Well, sometimes you sit watching people and, and, uh, and you just think, I don't fucking believe you. And I hate that. I hate seeing a comedian doing stuff that I don't believe. Do you mean that they they've made up an event, or do you mean yeah. they don't believe that, or they don't believe the, even the idea behind it, or and you know they've it's I know it's not a do, comedy's not a documentary, but sometimes it just feels like lying. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> certainly, I, I can certainly think of shows I've seen where I've come away with the inescapable feeling that someone has contrived a yeah. position. Yeah, 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 and I'll fold my arms, literally fold my arms, and inside my head I'm going. Bullshit! I don't believe you. Mm. And it takes all the joy of it, even of a really well constructed gag. If it's if I don't really believe that that this thing that you're saying is true, then I, I'm I'm not and I won't I won't enjoy it. You're someone that started. I was talking to Jared uh, earlier this week, and he was saying that you were right in at the beginning of the the classic. Yeah, well, right at the, the beginning, beginning of the, the, the sort of the scene, really, the circuit in New Zealand. Um, I was, uh, the scene started in 79 and I turned up in, no, sorry, 89. That's how young it is here. Mm. And I turned up in 90, the end of 93. No, uh, end of 92. Yeah, so almost at the beginning. So, yeah, when it was a, a monthly gig in a pub called Kitty O'Brien's and then it was a weekly gig and then we opened the classic. So you were part of the, the team that, when you yeah. said we opened the classic, so who was, the, what was the... Well, I, yeah, it was a, a team of people who, a bunch of comedians who threw some money into a pot, but I wanted to throw money into the pot and um, was too late for that to be a, gotcha. a cash investor in it. Um, as it turned out, it, um, it they all lost their money, so right. um, probably I did a good thing. Sure. <laughs> but then Scott bought the club and carried it on, so it's been going ever since. Okay. Yeah. And something I'm always, whenever I talk to a, a New Zealand comic, I'm always banging on about how supportive and nourishing I find the circuit here. Yeah. Has it always, I mean, do you agree that's the case? Has it always been like that? Yeah, I think so, because it was so small and so new and so young. Um, there was a sort of, I started, I got together with a bunch of other people in 1999 and started the New Zealand Comedy Guild. And I was the, Oh yeah, yeah. Okay. I looked after that for seven years, and 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 don't now because it's you know other people's turn to do that stuff. But there was sort of there was a lot of talking behind hands, people going, oh, "This is a bit shit. We don't get paid enough money, and somebody else is undercutting prices on corporate events and blah blah blah." So we started the guild so that we could, on a regular basis, get together and talk to each other about how much money people were earning, or if you went and did a gig at a pub and they didn't 
earn enough money and weren't going to pay you, you had suddenly a letter from the guild on guild letterhead saying you will be forthwith and mm. stuff like that worked. Mostly it was about us talking to each other. I mean, we used to not get paid for being in the gala on television. What? Was, okay. Yeah, so that's one of the first things that the, the guild did because the, the argument from the television people was that um, this was the most amazing advertisement for you that you could possibly mm-hmm. ever hope to have. So why would you want to get paid for that? Yeah, right. And so we dug our toes in and said, yeah. well, if you don't pay us, you pay your camera operators and sure. soundies and your sure. director. If you don't pay us, we won't turn up. I can't believe you managed to make that work with comics. Is that presumably because of the size of the industry yeah. at that time was enough that you? I mean, could you get all the comics in a room? Yeah, you could. You could. Yeah, right. Yeah. Well, believe, twelve of us. See be- <laughs> Is that a guild? Is that yeah. a minibus? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think that's been tried in the UK with no with no success. Yeah. There isn't, you know. A, I think it was also it was a. You're right. It was size and and time and history, and also there were no producers, managers, agents for comedians and I think although that that ultimately is a bad thing it was a really good thing for a guild because there's no you don't have a manager or an agent getting in there and going hey whoa whoa you're allowed to charge whatever you want for a corporate event there shouldn't be a sort of standard or a minimum pay rate or whatever yeah that does sound really healthy and I'm always struck by how have you had any part of the you know I know they do class comedy here they're a kind of I didn't do class. I didn't get involved in class comedians because I don't. I don't believe you can teach it. But I'm wrong. So uh, <laughs> no, that's okay. But this is a platform for you. So you don't. You don't think you can teach comedy? No. Can you? Can you help someone get better at comedy? Yes. Oh, absolutely. I think you can teach. Um, uh, you can teach. Skills. You don't, this, I, I recognise this is a divisive issue. So yeah. I, you know what I mean. It's yeah. fine for you to have come on your side of it. That's a, yeah. yeah. No, I see. I think it's it's bullshit. And um, but bless. And and I and I'm totally wrong because the people that come out of class comedians are really good, and they come with some some skills that other people don't have. They're already ahead of the game because they've been through that program. But I just I just think it's bullshit to sit in a room and talk to people about how to be funny. I reckon you you do it on stage, right? I you can show somebody how to hold a microphone at the right angle and um and how you make a mic stand go up and down. And after that it's just getting on stage and doing gigs. But I having said that I also understand that I'm totally wrong. I'm it's really weird. I'm very conflicted about it. I've taught some stand up classes to students. And like, you know, 18, 19 year old students. And I I don't feel like I've done the wrong thing by doing it. Yeah. But at the same time, I'm so cagey about trying to give any advice or anything. Because I think comedy is about being different to everyone else. Yeah. So how can you tell people yeah. how to be more like themselves? I'm sure that I'm sure it's possible somehow. I don't know who can do it. And I only ever feel like I'm yeah. kind of fudging my way towards it. This is you know, this is the blind leading the blind. Yeah, see two things for me. It's I I did do some workshops years ago showing people how to do comedy and I felt like such a dick <laughs> it just felt wrong and bad and and the other thing is when I hear the kind of advice that other people give to comedians just be just be like yourself but more or do you, you just need to be authentic and maybe you need to wear different pants and I just want to <laughs> Stab everybody in the eye. Have you ever been given advice by another comic that you actually thought was useful, was worthwhile advice? Oh, no. Oh, on, on individual gags, on material, okay. yeah. But any, I think advice from other comics about um, how to be or what kind of comedian you should be is appalling. I mean, I, but I had... I had terrible experiences in the early days of being told by people who ran comedy gigs what I needed to do. Basically, I needed to be younger, prettier, and and cuter. Okay. Yeah, so that was, I mean, nobody said, I reckon you should do more social commentary, Michelle. No, right. They said, it's a shame that, you know, there's another girl who's prettier and younger than you, and she wears more interesting clothes, so you're pretty screwed, really. And how did you react to that at the time? By just working really hard and, yeah, and mentally punching people in the face and fighting back. <laughs> the guy that said that to me, poor dude, he's an accountant now, so I feel like I won that one. <laughs> Maybe if he was younger, he'd have another shot. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah, he just needed a better suit. So so in those, in terms of, like, people 
giving you advice on gags or your own writing on gags when you're when you're writing um, routines and are you are you writing at the moment towards another show are you no, I'm, I've just signed a contract to turn stuff I forgot to tell my daughter into a book. Of course you have. Yeah. Yes, you mentioned this. So Great. That's, that's kind of my writing um, taken up for the next few months. Now, my instinct, probably totally wrong, my sort of privileged self-involved instinct would be that stand-up is the hardest thing to write. Yeah. And once you've, I think I was saying this in conversation earlier on today, once you have, once you've felt that pressure of every sentence needs to get a big laugh, yeah. surely... Yeah. Any other writing is easier. Now, maybe there'll be people listening to this that write obituaries who go, oh, that's my specialist thing is the hardest. I don't know. But do, do, do you find that in terms oh, of few drafts of the book? Are you thinking this is a whole different story? I feel really relaxed about writing the book. And, you know, ask me again in about six weeks. Yeah, right, I might, okay. I might tell you something else. But it's. I think you're absolutely right that writing for the eye in a book is so much less pressured than writing for the ear in a, in a club. And so I'm really, I'm excited about being able to say stuff that's not um, funny, but amusing. Mm -hmm. And yeah, and and I'm and also going off in directions that I can go off and that you can't really do in a show. Every time when I was doing that show that you saw in Christchurch that had, um, as well as it having five endings, is that I'd get to, um, I'd get to a bit and want to talk about something else. Well, writing a book, I can, because I just put another chapter in and then come back. So I'm really excited. I love words. I love that. That's my, I'm so happy sitting in my office, which is the most beautiful space in the whole world. <laughs> Which of your jokes would you say that you are most proud of? Do you have a joke that you think, ah, nailed that one? Do you have a joke or a bit that you think, you know, maybe like a signature bit or maybe just a moment, a turn of phrase or something? Because because I, I I have that feeling of like, oh, I've minted a thing there. That's, yeah. that's what really attracted me to it was not, I find it very difficult to write. I, it sounds idyllic to me, this is a situation. Um, I find it bloody difficult performing as well. But, you know, somehow between it all comes good eventually. But um, I... I do sometimes think, well, listen, there's there's that line, there's that joke, yeah, and I wrote that. I'm definitely a comedian because I wrote that. Oh, okay. Um, there are some. I'm hopeless at trying to get my brain to come up with them when I'm with whatever it is, with any of my comedy when I'm not in my comedy brain. Yeah. But but there are bits that I really enjoy doing at the moment. What, what am I? I'm, I'm, uh, there's a bit that I, no, I can. And you don't need to prove. You don't need to tell us what yeah. it is, and and you know there'd be some weight of expectation that it that it kill this the, this podcast. Yeah. But you're right that there are bits when you've written a gag where you go, oh look at me, I just I did what a comedian does. Yeah, and that's really gratifying. And it took me years before I, I used to say that I did stand up comedy, and it took me years to say I am a comedian. And there's a huge difference inside my head. I, I think I know what you mean, but just tell us a bit more. Just illustrate the difference between those two. Because I wasn't convinced that I was a comedian. I I knew that I did comedy and I appeared in comedy shows and I made people laugh and, and I was performing. I was, I was uh, doing the job of, but I wasn't necessarily a comedian as a, as a human being. Does that make it any clearer? Um... um what are what are the differences in you? What are the differences between a comedian and a person that does comedy? Oh, any week you can do comedy. <laughs> <laughs> That's the answer. There we go. Yeah, yeah. But a comedian has has like a little twist in their DNA, and they've done the hard yards, and they've you know um, proven themselves to some degree, or have a have an oeuvre, have something to fall back on. You know, yeah. Yeah, I mean, any fuck I can get up and do five minutes and be hilarious. And most people are hilarious the first time they get up and do five minutes. It's it's being, it's it's your 500th gig. That's the one. That's the one that says that you're a comedian. Yeah. And, and did you, when you were starting out and developing into what you are now, 
when you were writing jokes then were you sitting down and writing on a laptop yeah I tried that I would try this is before laptops I did it on a slate <laughs> it was before I had a computer for sure I've still got you know those notebooks school notebooks with, with terrible stuff do you ever look back through them I've yeah. got loads of notebooks, and I, I, at the time I thought I'll keep all these and I'll look back through them. They're I've never gone back to them. Are they? Yeah, they're <laughs> terrible. Because you look at them going, oh, who was I? Who was this douche? Yeah, no. Yeah, mm. um, so, but yeah, so I would try and create comedy, but I, I even got a book called Comedy Writing Step by Step. I believe I have that book. Yeah. And I tried to do the exercises in it. Is that and the Jean Parade book? I think so. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I tried to do the exercises in there and I, I wrote terrible shit. It was awful. So, I, yeah, I still do that thing of waiting for the magic idea to arrive in my head. It quite often happens sitting watching television with, watching the news, with, you know, anything that sparks my anger or bewilderment, um, particularly sitting next to Jeremy, my husband, and... And I'll say something, and he'll say something, and I'll say something, and suddenly, some, you know, there's a real thing that might be worth taking on stage, turning up, and one of us will grab divs, and and off you go. For the benefit of the listener, Jeremy is Jeremy Elwood, mm. uh, the brilliant uh, New Zealand comedian. So you do have to, you've got to call stuff. Yeah. I actually saw uh, Sarah Pascoe and John Robbins doing this backstage yeah. last night at a gig where she was going... I said that and he yeah. said no you said that but what I said was took that into a new direction and you can go you are both right yeah please resolve this yeah. between yourselves <laughs> and you know the best thing you can do for your relationship is um, when you see your partner on stage doing the gag that you think that you wrote and hear the laughter be pleased for them oh it burns <laughs> just, no you have to you have yeah. to be generous enough to take that away as actually that's a little laugh for me yes yeah. Yes, well, we, there's no finer time in a comedian's life when someone great is doing brilliantly and then does a tag that you suggested. <laughs> and you look around for someone next to you just so, just so you can just dive bomb. Anyone, anyone, that was me. Yeah. I've been guilty of leaning across to people I don't even know and saying, I wrote that. Amazing. Terrible. <laughs> you can't do that. Yeah. Your <coughs> persona on stage is, is you. Yeah. There's no change. There's no kind of, did you ever try to find your voice was that ever a thing do you recognize what that means yeah yeah i do and i i think because i came from doing i did character stuff i even do, did stuff at kitty o'brien's the, the club where the stand-up used to happen i did it in a wig that's how it all, <laughs> all... Out, out of a sense of what what motivated that um because i just need uh, hiding behind a character yeah not convinced that anything i had to say was very interesting or that anybody would want to hear it um, so, so I would create a wacky character or something. What? Where, that seems so far removed from who you are now. Was it the hard yards that did that to you? Yeah. Was it one? And I'm using that phrase forever, by the way. I'm loving yeah. that. Um, or was there was there one particular thing? Was there a turning point that you went actually screw this? Yeah, there was. You know, this is the great gift that um, uh, the trauma of a terrible marriage gave to me. Was one? I literally remember this happening. I was doing a gig up north in a um, quite a rough pub, in, in a puppet bar in quite a rough pub, you know, where they you just were still playing pool when you got on stage and shit. So, um, and I lost in that night all of my um, insecure, a huge amount of insecurity about whether I had any right to be there because I gave for some reason out of nowhere gave myself a little lecture about you've been through this and this and this and you've dealt with this and you you have lived through the, um you've seen more of the world than a bunch of these people in this room and uh, you have every right to stand on stage and say whatever you fucking think and it wasn't that was a night that it happened and, and what was the resulting gig like I'm pretty good. I mean, not not amazing. Not I'd love to say. Yeah. It was the most amazing. Game. In the movie of your life. Yeah, the, yeah, The yeah. script editor is really going to go to town on this, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I think incrementally from then on, I got more and more confident about being on stage. And now, you know, now I've got to that point, like I said before, where I just don't give a shit. This is this is me. This well, I do give a shit, but this is me, and this is who I am, and and and. You know, I'm asking for 20 minutes or an hour of your life, and if you didn't like it, then it'll be fine. But if this resonates with you and makes you feel like you 
belong in the world and that there are people in the world who think the way that you do, then, or I've made you think about something in a slightly different way, then fantastic. I'm going to challenge you on a bit of material now. Yep. But I'm doing it. Oh, good. There we go. So that is classic Michelle Aiko there. Yeah, bring it on. Um, You seem unapologetic about everything that you do on stage and about your life and what you relate to, which bits of you relate to us. I've watched a couple of clips of yours online and I know that they were both the same material. There's a a particular bit of material that I was quite surprised by and I don't know if it fitted into something else. On both occasions, you talked down about your face and the fact you're wearing makeup. You said something like, I've slapped a lot on, this is as good as it gets. Yeah. That seemed totally out of character for someone as brash and, not brash, but as someone as, as confident and unapologetic as you. And I just wondered, because I saw it in two different videos, I, I just wondered where that came from, where, whether you felt that you needed to apologise for your face or your femininity or, or what that was. Um, I think that's a, re- oh, that's a really good question. It's such a, a thing for the ladies and it's a, a, it's a bonding thing with that bit that I do about being middle-aged and, um, you know, looking in the mirror when you get out of the shower before you go to a gig and thinking, fuck, this will be a project. You've got to tidy that shit up so that you don't frighten people. Um, it's a bonding thing with the audience. But it's also, I, I'm wondering, I think it's it's not inauthentic for me because I do look at my face and go, I, genu- I genuinely do look at my face and go, it's quite... It's, it's not as good as it was yesterday, but it's better than it will be tomorrow. Do you know what I mean? For, for women, it just... Maybe you don't know what I mean. But you don't have to. But women are always second-guessing themselves physically. But I kind of like that chunk of material I do because it says, yeah, I might have some insecurities about how I look, but fuck the insecurities. Sure. It's like celebrating the insecurities. Okay. You're narrowing your eyes there as if you haven't quite no, I'm covered still, that. I'm still thinking that through. That's a really good question to ask me. I have real issues. Oh, look. I have real issues with um, the aging process for women and how the world perceives you and what that does to how much money I can earn, how much work I can get. Okay. Like... I get less and less television work and more and more radio work. Right. Because I don't fit the demographic that people want to put on the small screen. So I have an issue with it. And is that something... Like, I've heard some of some of that material about, you know, putting, uh, you know, yeah. slapping this on and it's all going to fall apart later on. Yeah. That doesn't seem to me to contain the, the anger that you've just... No. ...notified there. Yeah. Yeah, there's a there's a there has been for years a real um, uh, feeling for me of of skipping through some of that stuff and not confronting it. I get terrified of confronting how um, I get treated by people in the television industry here because I think if I confront them, I'll get even less work as a nun than I do, and I need that work right for to not just to make a living but to maintain a profile. So there's been a lot of um, how much can I say without losing every opportunity I could ever have? And does that does that dynamic exist in your head, or do you is is that like a is that a thing you're using to scare yourself out of saying it, or is that based on factual? Do, do you do you know yeah. anyone that that has rocked the boat and then been blacklisted? Yeah. Oh yeah. You yeah. Do? Oh, absolutely. There are people who just don't turn up on TV anymore because they got a bit too fucking lippy bit mouthy and I think it happens to women more than it happens to men um, yeah I really do so I think that that material that you're talking about has turned up because of um, that anger but I've presented it in a less than angry way because mm. there's still bits of me that are um trying not to offend people especially the people that can give me a job sure is any part of it do you think insecurity 
Oh, fuck, not really. <laughs> no, I wondered, I, I tell you, I'll be honest, the first thing when I thought that, I thought, oh, I, I wonder if she's sort of saying that so as to adjust her status with the women in the room. Yeah, maybe. That, that's well, something... It's definitely bonding. Oh, is that what you mean oh, when you say bonding? Yeah. Okay, okay. Because I, I don't know if you've experienced that before. I've talked to other female comedians who say that one of the difficulties of, one of the unique elements, let's say, of yeah. being a, a female comedian is that if you're a bloke, men laugh at you, women laugh at you. Yeah. If you're a woman, yeah. there's a possibility that men laugh at you and their wives don't like that they're laughing at right. you and they, they judge you differently. They like, who does she think she is? I think that's true, but I think because I used to be a children's TV presenter in this country, that's not a problem. I don't think anybody, I think they see me as the, the woman who used to entertain them on Saturday mornings. Gotcha. I think, yeah. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I, yeah. I don't know exactly what you're talking about, but I don't think I don't think that applies to me. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. So that's nearly all from Michelle. But before we finish, I'd like to include a conversation we had about a show we both happened to see a few days previously. Now, I'm not in the habit of critiquing other comics' work, especially in this interviews. In these interviews, that, that's not what this podcast is about. But in this particular case, uh, I thought Michelle's opinion would be of particular interest. We've both seen Reginald D. Hunter's New Zealand debut. He's an excellent comic. I'm sure many of you all know Reg. He's a really terrific comic who doesn't shy away from some very difficult territory. Uh, we've not had Reg on the show yet. I hope we'll get him on before too long. And I hope he won't mind us analysing his work in the context of this wider conversation about the responsibility of the artist. So we'll just bob back in uh, now to get Michelle Acourt's thoughts on that show that we both saw. I'm really glad I saw it and I've been thinking about it a lot for a week. Um, what really, really struck me... <sighs> Can I explain that I need to tell you, I need to say the line that made me um, think I couldn't breathe. And if I had been able to walk out at that point without anybody saying that I'd walked out, I would have walked out. Not because I wanted to storm out, but because I just didn't want to be there. Reg, everybody probably knows the joke. He does the joke about, um, he tells the story about his friend who has been raped and she doesn't tell the police and she deals with the healing in her own way. So the story that his friend has is a story that a lot of women have. And so then to dismiss it as just a story slash fiction and say that if your response isn't the way, isn't to call the police, then it's not real. And that most of all the phrase, tell it later to get what you want, is just extraordinary. And so women use those experiences <coughs> to emotionally blackmail men who haven't done the crime. Oh, God. It's really hard to be fucking articulate about this because mm. I find it, it was such an emotional reaction. Um, Let's look at this from a from a comic perspective. Yeah. From a professional yeah, yeah. comedian perspective. Yeah. Because I can see you're upset. Yeah. Um, I think what I want to do is talk about the wider issue of this because yeah. I don't, you know, I've not had Reg on the show. I know him. I like him. I, I really like, like him. him. Absolutely. I've I'm, known him for years. He's a good dude. Yeah. You know? He's a really good man with who thinks really deeply and who wants to affect social change. What one of the things that occurs to me is that maybe he. And this is a terribly pejorative, judgmental thing. To, maybe he shouldn't be telling women what they should do if they're raped. Maybe he should be talking to men who rape or talking to men about men who rape or talking to all of us. You know, because all of his stuff was about what women do and what women think and how women behave. And I... Um, wonder. It's made me think that maybe what comedians need to do is talk to their own tribe. I One of the things that somebody said to me about my show, the Stuff I Forgot show, was that it doesn't talk about men, it talks about women. And I'm really pleased with that. It talks about feminism in terms of women, not in terms of men. Um, and maybe that's important. 
that you're talking to the people that you are one of? I think I think what a lot of people find problematic about issues-based stand-up comedy is that we're all individual all of us comics think of ourselves as individual entertainers or artists or speakers of truth yeah and i think that you it's so hard to say to someone why don't you do this instead of what you're doing oh it's a terrible thing to say you know i wouldn't ever sit down with reg and say no i don't think you should talk about them reg i think you should talk but i'm i'm meaning in the bigger picture if you come at it from the idea that you want to make a difference then maybe you need to think about how you approach that do you think that comedians have a a right to say anything that they like do you think there are any limits on on the free speech of a comedian no absolutely not i think that's what stand-up comedy is is free speech and and so people have the freedom to say whatever they want and i have a the freedom to shout back and uh, or not go to their show and tell other people to not go to their show or any of those things. I think that's the, the magic of stand-up comedy is anybody can say anything and uh, even if it's hateful and triggering and all of those things, but we're all allowed to shout back, right? We can all shout back at them. That's really important. But as soon as you start... Um, censoring yourself and saying oh I can't ever talk about um, rape or race or then it's like you know the ideas won't come if you don't talk Mm. about the one that's making the noise then the other ones aren't going to come either really early on I wrote a rape sketch a comedy sketch about rape and so that's always been my reason for saying nothing's off the table it's all on the table it's how you tell the joke and it has to be really fucking funny. And we both know. I mean, we we know that Reg was running in material. I believe he, he yeah. sort of, you know, he was uh, exploring some ideas. And there has to be a forum for if you're going to end up with something brilliantly structured and tightly written and scripted and all yeah. the rest of it. There has to be a process on the way there. Yeah, totally. That's very tricky. It's really tricky. I mean, I, well, I would love to sit down with him and talk to him about it, but I think, I, yeah, I think everybody's been been throwing things at Reg for a while for yeah. stuff, and, you know, maybe that's not a, the greatest of ideas. I really admire what he's doing, and, and I'm so pleased I saw that show, and there were some things in there that made me think really hard, and there was a lot of stuff that made me laugh as well. Mm-hmm, maybe mm-hmm. made me laugh. But, yeah, I don't know why I put a but in there. I mean, that's, I want that from a comedy show, right? I, that show has been playing in my head for a week. That's a great thing to get out of a show. And I don't want to punch him in the face. I would, would love to have a conversation with him. I'd like to tell him why that gag was so uh, difficult. It's hard, isn't it, to talk about? What, what word do you use? You know, that, that gag was so problematic, challenging. What You know, yeah. Yeah, it was traumatic for me. Yes. That was, it brought stuff up. And he doesn't know that. I mean, it's not his job to even fucking know that. He doesn't need to know that. You know, it shouldn't affect the way he does his show, but maybe there's a conversation to be had over a bottle of wine. I'd like to... Well, we've got to wrap up now. Yes, because, sorry. Uh, we, we, yes. No, not at all. No, absolutely. This has been <laughs> fascinating. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Um, I... Uh, but I've got certain stock questions that I like to ask, and a, a, a new one that has occurred to me recently, which maybe you won't uh, get on board with in terms of uh, your feelings on teaching and, you know, oh, so yeah. But um, something I asked Ben Hurley recently was, if you were to get hit by a bus tomorrow, yeah. what do you want your legacy to be, comedy-wise? You know, if there are certain principles right. that you were like, do you know what? On my on my comedy gravestone, it says, here's the rule. Here's my, my one or two principles. This is what comedy's all about for me, and... You know, almost like a, a mission statement. Yeah. Do you have... What is it for you? It's a huge question. Don't yeah, worry. it's a huge question. I reckon um, somebody wants to know. That I think that it's really important for, to me to bear in mind that whatever crazy idea I have, somebody wants to know and somebody else thinks the same thing. So say it out loud. Thank you. That's brilliant. Mm-hmm.
So that was Michelle. Some really excellent stuff there, especially on her concerns about people's view of older women uh, producers and so forth and the way they see older women in the industry rocking the boat and so on. I suppose I'd naively hope that comedy was immune to that sort of bullshit. I suppose we've seen with uh, with Sarah Millican's uh, BAFTA dress uh, letter, a very, uh, very uh, passionate and exciting uh, letter that uh, Sarah wrote in defence of wearing whatever the fuck she wants to the BAFTAs. Um, so uh, we've seen that that is still, you know, people still bother to comment on stuff like that uh, even even when we i suppose I, I feel as comedians we should be sacrosanct anyway that's that's a, a story for uh, another time but that was michelle i urge you to check out her stuff uh, if you get the chance next week uh, it's the turn of the brilliant jared christmas uh, can't wait for oh no is it jared next week or am i gonna hold him back for a week because I want to put a new little, I've got a little exciting uh, advertising thing coming up. Um, I say exciting, exciting to me, to you. It's going to be, I'm sure, 25 seconds that you're going to have to look out the window for. Um, but uh, I, I, I'm I, going to experiment with working with an advert and you'll have to tell me what you think of it. Um, but so I think next week, either it's next week, I'm wool gathering now, I'm sorry, it's Tuesday morning, so it's effectively Monday morning after that bank holiday. Um, but coming up soon, let's say, coming up soon, Jared Christmas, and also coming up soon, an amazingly dry, dry as sand uh, Australian comedian called Luke Heggie. So I don't know which, uh, which order we'll do those in, uh, but both of them, great stuff. Should have mentioned last week, um, when, I, when I did the blurb for audible.co.uk backslash cc, not backslash Stuart, audible.co.uk slash cc, um, that uh, Tom Rigglesworth himself from last week's episode has got uh, his series of open letters that he referred to in the show. Uh, Rigglesworth's open letters uh, are available to download on Audible. Uh, and of course, if you don't have an Audible account, you can get a free trial. But if you go via audible.co.uk slash cc, then uh, the show gets a little a little uh, donate type gift from Audible um, for pointing you in their direction. So please do that. Uh, that's all for now Luke Heggie or Jerry Christmas coming up next week both of them great interviews great comics I'm Stuart Goldsmith this show was produced by Nathan Wood I'll speak to you next week ACAST powers the world's best podcasts here's a show that we recommend Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com.